right, this is uh, quick for uh, uh, what, what's been going on. I got another pod right away after months and months of not doing the pod. I think I'm on a roll. And uh, it looks like it's getting about the same traction. Me doing the pod by myself versus me, Donnie, and Mike. So, you know, we've gotten probably 30 downloads of the last pod in the last week, which is it's not a lot. I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all. I'm saying we're not doing too bad. 30 souls out there in the world listen to my last pod. Thank you, souls. Thank you for having ears. Thank you for paying attention to what I'm doing. And, you know, it's not easy. I'm on a floor right now in a walk-in closet. It sounded pretentious, didn't it? Oh, he's got a walk-in closet. That's not what I meant. I meant there was some space in this closet. I did walk into it, but I'm laying on the ground right now to do this pod because I'm in a trap situation. If you've been following this pod's journey, we went from a big-ass house with a separate studio down to the upstairs of the condo when nobody was home, to now when people are home, I got to hide in the closet to do my pod because, you know, I don't want people listening as I'm doing it. I just, probably why I'm not a great actor, you know, because there's people on the set that can hear you. I'm better by myself uh, doing my whatever I'm doing right now. And what am I doing? I'm talking to you about the next thing that's going to happen with this podcast which is not a progression. It's actually a degression. Is that a word? I don't know if it's a word. I'm digressing. Digressing or degressing, somehow I'm going backwards because now I'm on a floor in a closet doing this thing. Man, if this thing takes off, the story that I will have about how this pod has moved through its cycle. Yeah, this guy was doing a pod in a closet. That would inspire so many closet potters to come out and do their thing. I didn't think I could do a pod in a closet, but then I heard this, you know, the Carmen Sirisola show? That pod was done in a closet. That's how we all get our ideas that we could do it. You know, Bill Gates and, well, it wasn't Bill Gates. It was the Apple crew. The Apple crew built what Apple is today in a garage, right? Is that where Bon Jovi started? In a garage? Springsteen? I don't know. I'm saying a lot of great things happen because people just, look, we're going to find the space to do this. It doesn't matter where it's at in the beginning. You know, it could be in a, in a walk-in closet that you're laying on the floor. Again, it's not a giant walk-in closet. I have, I've had bigger closets in my life, and I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying where I'm at today, um, I'm not fully extended, and I'm only 5'7". So that's got to tell you something. I'm not fully extended in this walk-in closet. My knees are bent toward my body as I'm leaning on my right arm. I'm not even filming this because I don't know if people want to watch that. Uh, I mean, really, I used to tell Donnie and Mike, why are we filming the pod? People are, are not watching this. We filmed every episode. I think we've, we had over 120 episodes over a two-year period. We filmed every one of them. And I used to take clips and put them out there. It's bad enough that people don't want to hear just the audio, but it's a double slap in the face when people go, we don't want to hear your audio or watch your video. So what are you doing? 
Why do you think you're so important or so good that people are interested in you? Um, like, it, I think I said this before. It's not my choice doing this. I have to do this. Like, I'm not a great audience member. I'm just a performer. And I was created by the fire of people who didn't want to see me sit in the audience. They wanted to see me perform. So let me explain that. They didn't want to just let me sit and relax and watch what they were watching. They kept prodding me to get up and dance for them. You understand? That's why I'm here. Because I had to make people entertained by what I did. You know, and I'm sure it wasn't all amazing entertainment like this. <laughs> My entertainment probably was, you know, just making sounds or, or skipping or jumping off of something. But it turned into this. I'm a, I'm a professional. That's inspirational that I have made money doing this and I continue to support myself through the entertainment process, a career in entertainment. I just, you know, that's another thing. I just, I find everything, uh, the, everything has some bit of entertainment. You know, when we were selling the house, we went to Goodwill and I kept some notes on Goodwill because I, I'm not the kind of guy that just goes to Goodwill. I went to Goodwill. I was donating, of course. Um, that's a normal thing. I, I brought the stuff in the car. I pull into the Goodwill parking lot and up until their ramp. You know, Goodwill's spoiled today. They got like, there's a lot of brand new Goodwills out there. And they have brand new buildings with like these like little carport things where you can drive under. So if it, even if it's raining, you can still donate and the workers won't get wet, and they all have carts and dollies and multiple people to help lift the stuff from your vehicle into their store to sell for, I guess, a profit. Look, I don't know the Goodwill's financial structure. I have no idea. But what I'm saying is it's, it's pretty good for Goodwill. Yeah, it's pretty good. When you see major corners, major real estate, uh, devoted to a goodwill. Like, they, that used to be reserved for McDonald's. That kind of space was for, like, a Walgreens. Now there's a goodwill. We've got so much shit that we got to dump it at a goodwill because we don't want to feel bad about throwing it in the garbage. Better give it to goodwill. Okay, so I'm analyzing goodwill. I'm just watching everybody, you know, because we, we got reprimanded at goodwill. Imagine that, bringing stuff that you pay money for. Think about the process of me going to buy merchandise after working, after tax dollars, buying stuff from a Target, a Walmart, an Amazon, a JCPenney, using that merch and keeping it in conditions that's, you know, are fairly good, donatable. Then bringing that good, usable merchandise to a Goodwill just to be reprimanded by a guy who says, hey, man, don't ever bring this much stuff after 5 o'clock. Well, you're open till 8. Don't you dare bring this much stuff to this Goodwill after 5 o'clock. I work by myself after 5. I got reprimanded. I got reprimanded by Dave. You know, here's a guy who he had a name tag on. You know, and is telling me, and what am I supposed to do? I want this shit out of my van. I do not want to take it back home. I'm not bringing it to the dump. And I, this is 
hundreds of dollars of valuable merch. This is lamps and tables and clothing and who knows what I gave away. Yeah, a lot of stuff. And I'm giving it to this guy and he's reprimanding me. And then I have to ask for a receipt. No, here's what, they guilt you. Used to be they just hand you the receipt. Now it's like, do you need a receipt? Huh, what's that mean? Well, are you just going to donate this or are you going to try to write it off? I'm going to try to write it off. I want I want some credit for this. You know, I brought this stuff in. I don't know, my, my accountant asked me every year. Boy, this really does sound pretentious. I got a walk-in closet. I buy hundreds of dollars of stuff from pennies. And now this guy's got an accountant? What the fuck? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I got everything going on for me. I got everything. I got an accountant. How about that? How about shoving that up your fucking ass? I got an accountant. Whoa, that's a little aggressive. Yeah, it's kind of fun, right? To, after all these years to have people that work for you. Hmm. Because I sure as shit do not want to deal with the IRS myself. Let the accountant deal with it. Let her ask me, do you have any good goodwill receipts? Goodwill receipts. You know what that's like? That's currency for Dave. Dave has a pocket full of goodwill receipts. That man is is lousy with goodwill receipts. He's rich. Could you imagine him going to Chili's and, hey, what do I need money for, right? I got the baby back ribs. I got a Coke. I uh, had a little bit of chocolate brownie afterwards. $22 or... How about somebody's blank goodwill receipts, huh? Yeah, fill them out yourself. Whatever you, amount you want to put it in. Bring it to the accountant at the end. This guy is using goodwill receipts as currency. That's my whole thing, is that I started thinking about, geez, if I had a whole pocket full of goodwill receipts. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, a, it's probably considered fraud. So it's not a great idea to use your goodwill receipts as currency. But I have to have a bad feeling that Dave's doing that. That he's just, hey, how about a, you want a $50 receipt? You want a $100 receipt? Oh, you want a blank receipt? Yeah, that's what's going on at Goodwill, in my brain, at least. Now, this guy was like, he was almost like the boss of Goodwill. I felt like we were going to pay a tribute to him. Like, okay, we got to go see Dave. What are we bringing him today? Are, are we good donators? Do we bring him a dresser or a rack full of shoes or a hamper or some electronics? I want Dave to look at me and go, you're a good donator. Huh? You're one of my best donators. Like he's, like he's a mob boss paying a tribute to this guy. You're my best giver. How about that? You're my best giver. Yeah. You're one of the top five families of charity in this town. I know I equate a lot of things to the mob, but it feels like that's what the world is. Everything could be equated to the mob. The government, families, and the goodwill guy. There's a hierarchy of goodwill where Dave is the godfather. He's the boss of bosses. You know, he's he's in control. You got you got your five families of charity. You got Goodwill. You got Salvation Army. You got Red Cross. You got Tidewell. You know, you got the Mission Thrift. You got Food Banks. These people, we're getting together. We're gonna sit at a big table. We're gonna try to you know bring peace to the to the to the region. I'm I'm telling you, this is this is how I feel sometimes about these things, where, you know, no matter what it is, there's a control aspect to it. Of course, you want to be the guy with a pocket full of, of goodwill receipts. Uh, 
I'm just telling you, I, I got treated poorly. And uh, that's the way the world's going right now, right? It's the way the world's going. I am taking the stuff out of my car, by the way. You know, and I don't want to burden them, I guess. I feel like, well, I'll help them. But if you help too much, pretty much they're going to stand there and watch you load their carts. So uh, here's the thing. If you're going to donate to Goodwill, don't take no crap. Go there after five, even if Dave's by himself. I'm sorry, Dave. How about all this crap I bought that I'm giving you for free? And by the way, unload my van. huh? Why don't you put this stuff on your own cart? Do it, Dave. Right now. You don't want me to call Goodwill headquarters, do you? Where's the Goodwill headquarters? Is that somewhere in India? Is that up in the sky, like in heaven? Where's the Goodwill headquarters? I don't know. I'll get nuts if I have to. Goodwill. That's, that's... I wrote that down. I'm not sure if that's going to translate into a bit. You know, I'm, I'm bringing this out to you right now because I'm thinking you, the potters, you, the people of the podcast nation who listen to these things, you could tell me, is that is that a bit? Is that going to be a bit? Will the five families of charity become a bit? Or does that sound too hacky? It's kind of hacky. Probably won't do it. But I felt like really that those goodwill receipts, I think what really turned me on to thinking this was funny was that he was using those receipts as, as, as currency. You know, that's the currency. It's like going to Chuck E. Cheese and the guy's got a, you know, a, a pocket full of tokens. Damn. You're the bank, basically, at Chuck E. Cheese. If you got a pocket full of tokens, you are the guy with the mansion. You're the guy with the Jaguar. You're the guy that runs the show. Anywhere that you got the currency of where you're at. Think about that, right? The post office, all those stamps. That's real money because those are stamps, right? The currency of of uh what else what else is currency food yeah controlling food everything is currency and i just uh i thought it was funny i don't know maybe it's not funny i don't know you tell me so we're here in the closet we've donated all of our stuff and now i'm in the mode of all right what else do I what I what do I do now that I've really kind of consolidated my life? I figured it out. I sold the big house. I kind of got rid of a lot of stuff at Goodwill. Um, hmm. Do I work heavily on comedy? Comedy is one of these things that at some point you get a little discouraged. You get a little tired. You get a little, you know. But do I really want to go out there and do another gig? Do I want to drive to Pemberville, Ohio? I was talking to my buddy today, and uh, Tim, and you know he's uh, someone that's been doing comedy a little less longer than I have. But the thing about stand-up is that you got to continually do every gig, so you're good at the big gigs. So if there's a a gig that's at a bar, if there's a gig that's at a reunion, if there's a gig that's in a one-night club setting, those are not the greatest gigs. Right. Those are the, the gigs that you take so you can really kill it when you do the Friday night in, a, in an A-list club, right? Where you want to kill and make sure that you're on, on track, that you, your voice is perfect, 
that what you're saying is on point, that you have memorized everything correctly, that your timing is right. You do all those things, right, for that moment. But in between, it's so easy to fuck off. God, is it so easy. Right? And because it doesn't seem organized. You know, I'm not Amazon. I'm not even a, a well-put-together convenience store or a one-man operation thrift store. You know, some people, you go into their store and you go, this guy's got it put together, right? It's The shelves are, are nice and neat and the floor looks good. The window looks nicely displayed. Nah, not for comedy. Comedy is when it happens, it happens. When I have inspiration, I write shit down, right? So the Goodwill thing was inspiration. Then I got to write it down. It's a chore. I start going, do I really want to have to write everything I think about down? Yeah. If you don't, then you forget, and maybe that was gold. That Goodwill bit is gold, right? It's gold. You know it's gold. Who's talking about Goodwill? That's the thing, too. It's like, okay, have people talked about this already? Do I attempt to roll this bit out? And by the way, you don't have a lot of chances. Even if you worked every night, that's seven nights a week. You have seven chances that week to roll out a bit. Well, you better pick the, the right bit because if you don't pick the right bit, you go from seven nights to maybe six nights to maybe one night to maybe one time a month because if you don't kill with the bit, so your choice is you better kill, you better have the right bit, there's not that much opportunity to try your bits. You know, this is a little different because I need you. I need the audience. I need the audience to respond back. This is not comedy in a vacuum. You know, if we made pizza, I think I analogized pizza last time too. If a pizza place makes a pizza and they want to know if it's good, shit, you can test it all over the place. Comedy, you got to test it in the setting, in a comedic setting. That's the only way you know it works. You can't really test it on your buddies and your your friends and your relatives. I mean, you can, but you become annoying, and then it's a biased crowd if they like you. It's also a biased crowd if they don't like you, <laughs> because you might be good, and the guy doesn't really like you, and you know he doesn't laugh on purpose because he wants to make sure that you fail. Yeah, that's where my mind goes. <laughs> People out there like that. What can I tell you? Um. So my premise is the stuff that I've been working on now is stuff like, yeah, I've been thinking about since I've been here. You know, my family's Italian and there's, there's some weird thing about being Italian. Like you, when you're young, you kind of want to be in the mob, you know, for the perks, just the perks, not for the killing, the perks. You want to be in the mob to get into restaurants, you know, to be, to be ushered to the front of the line. You want to drive the Cadillac. You think it's smooth, right? These guys wearing suits or playing cards or the way people talk about the way the movies idolize the mob. I'm not a mob guy. Are you kidding me? I, like, I, to even own a gun, that's a scary thing. You know, who wants a gun, really? Nobody wants to have a gun, right? If you're comfortable with a gun, um, hmm, why? Why are you so comfortable with a gun? See, for me, I'm not. And it's because, number one, I don't want to get into any altercation. I don't want to have to use a gun. I don't want to fight anybody. I don't want to be in that situation where I'm approached. But it happens in this world, right? So things happen, and you have to be ready. You better be prepared as an adult for at least 
being uh, figure out a way to avoid confrontation. That's where humor came in. So I always said I wasn't raised around guns. I'm not comfortable with guns. I was raised around bread. Like if there was a road rage incident, I'd be better off with a loaf of ciabatta. The ciabatta bread can solve more than the gun. We break bread. We solve our differences. We eat a nice piece of ciabatta and then we go home. How about that? That's nice, right? But the idea of being in the mob, because of the way it's portrayed, right, that is probably something that a lot of a lot of Italian boys for sure look at that and go, oh man, that would be cool to be in that. No, it's not gonna be cool. You don't wanna be in the mob, all right? Uh, I would never be a made man. I would never be a made man. I'm a self-made man, yeah. Self-made man, that's right. Self-made man. <laughs> That's kind of goofy, right? I'm a self-made man. The made man is the mob man. The self-made man is the guy that couldn't get in the mob, so he had to make himself. <laughs> That's not bad. It's not a bad joke. Um, you know, it's it's a weird thing when you come up here and you start hearing about the mafia. Um, the people talk about it more than they do in Florida. You know, who was around when, and this is where this happened. and It's like history of something. It's like any war. It's like anything that's ever happened that was bad in this country that uh, people talk about. I'd rather talk about this is where I got my start in comedy. Cleveland Comedy Club. It's gone. They smashed it because baseball is a better, I guess it makes more money. They put up the Indian Stadium, now the Guardians. They smashed the comedy club, and they put up a baseball stadium. If that doesn't tell you where comedy ranks in this country, the Cleveland Comedy Club was one of, I think, eight clubs in, like, the 70s. Right? There was no comedy club. This is, this is what I heard. I haven't done... I don't like to do a lot of research because it takes work, and I don't have some type of uh, gopher here to help me look this stuff up. But I'm pretty sure, if you could do it for me, I'd appreciate it. I think that the Cleveland Comedy Club was one of eight clubs in this country. And it wasn't anything great to look at. It was just an old building. It felt like a mobile home inside. It was narrow. I only went on Sundays when you know they would allow me to perform, not in front of a, a decent crowd. Well, it was really, you really can't say that. The crowd was decent. It was a crowd that didn't expect decent comics. You know, that's that's the truth because that was open mic night. People expected the crappy comics to show up for the open mic night. These are the new guys, right? And the first 10 comics, the first open micers, it's hard to call an open micer a comic. You know, you're really not a comic yet. Um, you know, if you're a pilot that's being trained, you're not a pilot. If you're a doctor that hasn't uh, gone through residency or even got to the point where he, he he's passed his medical uh, testing, he's not a, a, a doctor. So you can't call, I hear this a lot, they call open micers comics. The comics for tonight, these are not comics. Comic is a sacred word reserved for people who have put their time in and are still laying on a walk-in closet floor doing a podcast because they're not a good audience they're a better performer 
That's a comic, a guy who's put his time in. So the people who showed up, like me, back in 87, were citizens of Cleveland, normal citizens. That's all we were, trying to be funny and win 50 bucks. And it just wasn't paying the bills. <laughs> so they smashed the building and they put up the Indian Stadium. And the Cleveland Comedy Club does not exist anymore. Think about that. If that was such a flourishing business, guess what they would have done? They would have built it somewhere else. They would have sold the name. But no. Now you have hilarities in Cleveland. And you later on had the improv. Right, So I'm not saying that Cleveland didn't have comedy at all or that comedy wasn't important to some degree. But the one, one of the most famous comedy clubs in the country never got revived and was smashed to never be seen again. And it seems like no one really gave a shit. No one cared. I mean, I talk about it. And, you know, the young comics look at you like you're talking about a Model T. That's how they treat you. It's like talking to a Tesla guy about a Model T and how great the Model T was, and he's riding around a Tesla. That's how the young comics look at the older comics. There's no, there's no like, oh, man, tell me the story about the Cleveland Comedy Club. No. No, and I accept that. I accept that. Um, I just, I, I, the truth is, as a 60-year-old man, I can't remember how I treated the 60-year-old man when I was 24. I'm pretty sure I didn't want to be around them. <laughs> I didn't want to be around the 60-year-old people. I didn't want to be around the 35-year-old people. So for me to expect any more from the youth is stupid. Just plain dumb. Of course, they're doing what they do. They're in the time of their life right now. They have all their hair. Damn it. They got all their hair, black hair on their head, thinking they're going to live forever. Don't take that away from them. Don't be the old guy that goes, well, you fucking idiot little kid. You're going to be old too one day. And you're No, don't do that. Don't ruin someone's future or try to shit on their, their, their life ahead. Don't do it. Try to understand, right? Try to understand or put yourself in, in their shoes when you were that young and think about it. No one wants to hear about your Cleveland Comedy Club story. And the fact is, the Cleveland Comedy Club just wasn't that big a deal for them to revive it or anyone to buy the name. Comedy exists. Comedy is important. Live comedy is still important. I mean, there's still clubs out there. People go see individual comics, I think. That's the big thing. And those comics, the big comics, can do the big theaters that have been around for hundreds of years. Is that right? Hundreds of years? I don't think so. Um, 100 years? There's theaters out there that have been out there for 100 years or more, even in Cleveland. And then the big stadiums. You know, if you're a big enough comic, you can attract people. So it's important. People want to laugh. And they want to laugh at what they want to laugh at, right? Their type of comedy, their, their age-appropriate comedy. I mean, did I laugh at Johnny Carson? Yeah, and he, he was older than me. Um, it was a different game. But when when uh, Steve Martin came out, who was a younger comic than Carson, I think. I, I'm pretty sure. 
I was probably 15 when I first heard Steve Martin's um, Wild and Crazy Guy album. And he was different. He was unique. And for me, that was like, okay, this is not the same old comedy that I heard on NBC from Johnny Carson. This is, this is, this is different. And so was Richard Pryor, but I had not heard Richard Pryor because it wasn't as accessible. You didn't have the internet. You know, to listen to a Richard Pryor sketch, a full sketch, like live on Sunset Boulevard, you had to buy the album at 15, really, to tell you the truth. I didn't have money for comedy albums. I didn't really even understand where to get a comedy. I didn't know nothing about it, to tell you the truth. My comedy exposure was uh, from the mainstream and from, you know, people talking about comedians, SNL. There was a lot of comedy from SNL that I loved, <clears throat> but it wasn't stand-up. It was more sketch. So it wasn't as, as out there as it is today. So you, you got you to really... The internet, no matter what, right? TikTok and the rest of it has really exposed everybody to comedy. It's been important, especially in that medium. So I can't say that comedy was not important. But they did smash the club. They did put up the stadium. I know sports are important. I know people flip out if you, uh, if you first of all, are not a fan of a, a team that's in your city, especially a city like Cleveland. This is a big sports area. People love the Browns. They love the Guardians. They, they love their sports. They want to win the Cavaliers. Again, I'm not a big audience guy. You know, I'm better as a performer. Put me on the court. Give me the ball. I'm, I'm telling you, LeBron, pass me. He's not even on the team anymore, but LeBron was a huge influence here. He still is. I, I just walked into a Firestone to get a nail pulled out of my minivan's tire. Whew, I just gave you a lot of information right there. That's right, I drive a minivan. And I'll tell you why, if I remember. But I was in that Firestone and three guys talking about LeBron, who's the king of basketball. There's some argument. I think they mentioned Carmelo. I think they're talking about Carmelo Anthony. I don't know sports. I know as much as I need to know for comedy. If I'm going to do some sports-related event, I will stock up on information. I will do my research and make the comedy about it. But as far as being a big fan of sports, never happened. I love to play the sport. That's right. I played football. Uh-huh. And I'm small. Why did I play football? Because I love football. Um, let's just say that, again, performer. I love being a performer. Even if I was a bad football player, it didn't matter. I was on a team. I had a jersey with my name on it. They announced my name. When, when did that happen before I joined football? Never. When did my name get announced at a stadium onto the field, number 30, what was I, 32, Carmen Suricillo? Ah. You don't even have to get on the field. They're going to announce who you are. I made the team, right? I made the team, which I'm going to tell you the truth on that. It wasn't that hard. I was in Iowa. Um, I was 10th grade. I made the sophomore team. So that's kind of common. But to make varsity in 10th grade, that's a little more difficult. So junior year, you cannot play sophomore football. you got to make the varsity team. Junior year, I quit football. Yeah, I quit it. And, of course, it was over something dumb. Uh, look, 
just not, it was never meant for like a routine or consistency or I just, at that time for sure, at that age, I had a lot of shit going on. <clears throat> Twelfth grade, I came back. <laughs> Sounds like a big triumph. I came back. They brought me back. Uh, they didn't want me back. And the coach, who surprisingly said to me, yeah, you can come back on the team, but if you make one mistake, you're gone. Amazingly, this guy, what a man. Coach Morrissey, he was great. He really was a great guy. When you look back, you love those, those teachers and those coaches much more than at that moment when they're fucking making you run the hill and no water and doing push-ups in your pads. He was a great guy. And I am truly appreciative of, of getting those... Uh, months, because it wasn't a very long time that I was under his his wings, but his the months of guidance under a guy like that, a tough man, who told me if I screwed up, I was out, and you know I wasn't really a, a major con- contributor to the team. What happened was we had a great team, and I was second string, amazingly, with no real football knowledge. I had not played peewee football. I didn't really know the game. I never watched it on TV, but somehow. Still made second string in Iowa with a bunch of very tall men, boys, uh, you know, six foot and over guys that way bigger than me. Um, I was on, I got to play. I got to play football when we were ahead. <laughs> we're ahead by 30 points. Guess who gets to come in? Carmen. That was enough for me, by the way. That was... I never looked at it as something bad. I looked at it as I get to play. I get to go on the field. I get to actually play with this team. This is a great team. That mentality, I wish I, I wish I would have hung on to that mentality a little harder as I got older. But I moved back to Cleveland. And, you know, Cleveland and the group that I hung out with, especially my father's people, you know, his mentality was always... I think he thought that he deserved more, even though he didn't. He didn't, you know. He he wanted more and didn't didn't really earn it. And that was kind of uh, washed down over us, me, my sisters, the my cousins. I don't think anybody would admit this. You know, this is not a a great thing to admit to. But I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of us thought that we were better than who we were. And that just bit us in the fucking ass so bad. It's still biting a lot of people that I will not mention. Still biting people in the ass. You cannot think you're better than other people. Number one, um, if you are better than other people, you definitely should not, you know, taunt people with it. You should just use your skills and be and be grateful and and be thankful that you have, you know, what you got. <clears throat> but it, that wasn't my case. <laughs> So I don't even know how to act because um, I never had as much skills as most people. But I felt like didn't matter. Didn't matter. I, I deserve to be on this team or I deserve to uh, whatever it was. And like be in school and get decent grades without putting the work in or doing doing what I should have done. I learned. I learned a very hard lesson coming back to Cleveland and developing that attitude. I was almost free of it. When I went to Iowa, I kind of was around people that were more humble and, and graceful and not as cocky. And it's just something about the 80s, the 70s, 80s. 
on the east side of this country, whether it's Jersey, New York, I just, you know, you see it. You see it in the movies. You saw it in the attitude of the people. There was some, um, I think it was like almost like a fear. Are you afraid to be who you are? Yeah. What if I get laughed at? What if I'm not as tough as my cousin is? What if I can't, you know, do what he does? Or should I pretend? Should I pretend I can do what he does? Should I have the attitude of someone, you know, the, the faux macho attitude of, of uh, what he does? You know, do I want to actually do that? I mean, that, that, that's fucked up. That's where the comedy has to come, right? Comedy is you recognizing, you know, that you were kind of stupid in so many ways and it was funny. What did I do? I used to act like uh, I was 6'2 and I'm only 5'7", or that I was tougher than, you know, than I really was, and boy, oh boy, I hope no one challenges me. You know, that's, that's where the, the whole idea of not very happy with confrontation, I didn't want to confront anybody. First of all, I'm too small. And number two, I'm not interested in, in fighting anyone. And number three, I would rather have comedy and laughter and breaking bread. That ciabatta bread, that's going to save you. Not that gun. The ciabatta bread's going to save you if you can break bread with people. And you know what? It's proven itself. That, that theory of being nice to people, of being kind, of helping, of being friendly when you don't feel like it, not having an attitude. I didn't know what that meant. See, I think most people with attitudes, uh, if someone says, hey, man, you need to drop the attitude, and you don't know what that means, you got an attitude. If you don't know what that means when someone says you have an attitude and you're like, what? What does that mean? It means you do have an attitude. You have an attitude that is skewed the wrong way. We all have an attitude. Your attitude is skewed in a way that is making you look bad to other people when you think you're looking good. You're not looking good, bro. You look really bad the way you're acting. And I'm going to point it out to you to help you. And I've had that happen to me. I had it happen to me with a club owner. I've had it happen to me with, uh, you know, adult guidance counselor, teachers, those types of people. I've had it happen. I've had that said to me, um, probably friends, parents. But my dad wasn't around. And, you know, when we had the podcast with Mike and Donnie, I talked about this. You know, my dad died at 14 when I was 14. And uh, before that, he wasn't really around, and it was bad guidance. And, you know, we look at adults as the ones that set the rules, right, and the boundaries. And then when they break those rules and boundaries, then you say to yourself, well, why am I following these rules, these boundaries? So my father used to break the rules a lot, and he broke them when I was young to the point where I started feeling or knowing, not feeling. I think at that time, it wasn't a feeling. It was I knew that rules didn't matter. He taught me that. And, of course, it was an incorrect teaching, but you're 12, you're 11, you're 10, and there's shit that's going on that is pretty bad. And you follow your father's footsteps. He's the adult. And his siblings and his father and my mother and everybody else who was connected, these are the adults that, 
if they start breaking the rules or going out of bounds, then they can't really enforce any more rules or boundaries with you. And that's exactly what happened. No one could tell me what to do. If my father couldn't tell me what to do or my mother couldn't tell me what to do, who are you to tell me what to do? And that was a very, very tough thing to go through as a kid because you need those boundaries. You need those rules. And I had nobody to really help me or set me straight. So it ended up that it took me, you know, the school of hard knocks, uh, a lot of failure, a lot of failure, a lot of getting nowhere, a lot of going backwards until I realized something's wrong. I'm not getting where I need to go. I'm feeling bad about it. And I changed. I completely changed to the amazing person that I am today. Wow. No, I'm really better. I, uh, I, I really have to accredit a lot of this to my wife and, and having children. Those things really do set you straight. And then, of course, everything else comes once you start following the right path and you start looking at everything from your new family, your, your wife and your kids' family's view versus the old family, which was, you know, being under my mother and father's uh, guidance and living with them and what happened with them. That was, that was chaos. To have all that chaos in my life before the age of 14, I never went to therapy. I never talked to nobody about it. Uh, probably a, a huge case study. God, I'm a huge case study. I would love to open up the can and uh, that is my head and see what people, but I don't want to pay the money. You know, I already think I know what they're going to say. You are lucky you survived that shit, Carmen. I got to pay a lot of money for that. I'm just living my life now correctly. And I have all of those memories still in me that don't really affect me. I try to make jokes about it. You know, I'm trying to uh, discount it as, well, it's over. It's a foolish thing to continue to, to run your life based on what happened to you under the age of 14. So I don't. So now my life is, all right. I see all these successful people. Uh, who do I want to be? Do I want to be a successful? It, it, look, it's I'm already there, so it's, this, is, this is a foolish exercise. I've already said that. This is what I used to say. What do I want to be? Do I want to? You know, at first I wanted to open a pizza place. That would have been pretty good. Not too hard. Probably wouldn't have got me where I'm at today, especially mentally. Because you could be stuck in a pizza place in one area and never grow mentally. Never grow your attitude. Never grow your personality. Never change your behavior. I put myself out there to the world. The world now tells you, hmm, yeah, you're a weirdo. Or you're a pretty good guy. Or you're funny. Or that was stupid. You know, And to hear those different points of views from different things that you experiment with, which to me are the jokes, the humor, the things I do on stage, and to not take it too personally, just take it as everyone is now helping me and shaping me to who I want to become. And, you know, it's still a process. It's still a process. I'm still in this making the mold of who I am. We should all be like that. You know, you can never just be satisfied with who you are right now. There's always room to grow, to achieve more in whatever it is you want to do. You know, do I want to be a podcaster? This podcast thing? Do I want to go through this? 
without Mike, without Donnie anymore, in a closet. What if I what if I make this podcast so good that I call Mike up and I go, Mike, the podcast is fucking killing it. You got to come back, bro. You got to come back. I need you. I need Donnie. And for those of you who have never heard me and Donnie and Mike together, go back to some of the older episodes. Um, or maybe it'll just continue the way it's continuing right now, which is probably the way it is. You know, I'm going to be doing the podcast on my own, from my own space. And I got to adjust. I, I don't know. Is the closet the right place? Could be. I like this. I like this little trap room. I like this cave surrounded by my pants being hung with little hangers. All my little shirts, my wicker baskets, my shoes all surrounding me. I could probably live in this space. This is probably no more than, I would say, five by eight. So it's 40 square feet. Now, there's no window in here or refrigerator or bathroom, so I'm going to have to leave eventually. But there's light and uh, a sponge ceiling. It's not popcorn ceiling. It's a sponge plaster, which I could stare at. If I was on shrooms, if I stared at the ceiling, I could see so much, and it would be different every time. So that would be entertaining, but I don't do shrooms. Um, pretty satisfied. And this is, this is the result like I was saying, of all the years of adjusting to what do you want to be? What will you be happy with? At 14, I had other thoughts. I mean, I remember when I was like 10 years old talking to this other kid at the Holy Redeemer. Me and Stephen Marino used to like uh, write down our goals. We wanted a mansion. We wanted one of those, those vans. Remember those, those vans <clears throat> with the little moon window in the back? And they had like a bed in it and a stereo and, a, you know, it was like the, the hippie days, right? The Coming out of the 60s, those, those really cool custom vans with the gray paint jobs. That was like the thing. Um, now, now it's just a decent closet. Yeah, with good air conditioning. There's a vent in here. Makes me happy. Makes me happy to uh, exist without having to entertain myself so much. You know, I don't have to go to a concert. I don't have to be at a casino right now. I'm entertained right now doing this. Now, to tell you the truth, I do like casinos. And that's probably a sickness. Going to have to figure that out because I lose. It's a vice. Is that what they call it, a vice? Why is that shit legal? It's so addicting. They, they drag me in there. They got great games with lots of noise and... Makes it seem like like it's exciting, but take a look around. Not too many people are excited, so realize that your closet's probably better than a casino. Making a podcast probably more more entertaining, more um, economically smart than going to the casino with all the lights and the whistles and the the machines and sometimes the payouts and you know the the cheap buffet or whatever they're offering you to get you in there. <clears throat> Still going. Sorry. Still going to the casino. That little speech is not going to stop me. I'm still going. I'm still going to probably drink sometimes a little too much. And I'm probably still going to not have a good attitude sometimes. 
maybe even swear a little too many times on stage, even though my wife says to me, can you not say fuck so often? Can you cut back on the swearing? Yes and no. That's right. I know I don't want to be perfect. God bless, I don't want to be perfect. My hair is going away. I'm short. I have a small belly. That shit I don't like. But it does tell you, no matter how hard you try, my friends, imperfection, you must learn to live with it. You must learn to be able to go out into the world and not feel so great about yourself and still accomplish what you need to do. <laughs> that's, that's the speech right there. That's my TED Talk. Go ahead and go out in the world with a full head of hair and then go out in the world with thin hair that you can see scalp or a big forehead and then try to accomplish the same shit. The guy with the full head of hair, this should be cake for you, bro. You should be living the fat life right now, especially if it's full head of the hair that's not great. Don't you dare tell me that you can't do it because there's guys out there like me that have gray hair that's very thin that are going out there and yeah, we're so, still self-conscious just because we're mature adults that have gone through a lot of shit, we're still self-conscious, okay? All right. So I was going to go through a bunch of material with you. I think the goodwill thing stopped me because, uh, I don't know, it seems stupid to go through it on the podcast and bore you with it. I'm not going to bore you with this. Now, if you thought it was fun, sure. Send me a, a telegram, a text, a fax, and let me know. Oh, I love that, Karen, when you did the Goodwill thing. Could you now do the next thing? I was trying to do stuff about the mob, but then it sounded too serious. It's all supposed to be a joke. Got too serious. I have something about abortion, probably too serious for this. And when I say serious, it's I don't have Mike to bounce it off or some other pod partner. If I had another person, then we could bounce it. But just me, it's I'm having a tough time making this sound like this would be funny. Let's see, no high tops for little people. I don't know why that was funny to me. I wrote that down. A lot of jokes about backing out. Uh, Chick-fil-A. See, none of this. I'm not I'm bored with my own stuff. Folks, how does that how does that cure itself? How do you not um, how do you how do you entertain yourself without being bored with what you come up with? I guess that's what's entertain that's what entertainment's for. See? That's why you don't crush the Cleveland Comedy Club with the the Cleveland Indian Stadium. You don't crush it. Someone needed to go there because they were bored of their own shit. They needed to go see someone else entertain them. Please entertain me. Right? And God bless it. Don't let it be a screen like a computer or a television or an iPad. No. Entertain me with something live, 3D, in my face, even if it's just a squirrel eating a nut or a hummingbird eating some, some sweet juice off of those flowers in my backyard that I watch in the morning. It's entertaining. It's different. Keep yourself entertained, folks. Listen to my podcast, okay? Let me know how it's going. Send me a text, email, telegram.